Hi, I'm a higher ed CMO and I have a confession to make. The marketing maturity model that I'm using to transform the marketing operations at Miami University, well, I borrowed that idea from someone and we're going to talk to her today. Sessions of a Higher Ed CMO, the podcast designed for higher education marketers. I'm your host, Jamie Hunt, and I am so excited to have this opportunity to share insights and inspiration. With Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, I'm designing a different kind of podcasting experience. With each episode, I'll be bringing in a guest for a deep dive into the challenges and joys we all face in higher education marketing. After each episode, you can join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag HigherEdCMO. I would love to see this become like a book club, but for a podcast. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at at JamieHuntIMC, that's J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C, for more opportunities to connect. I'm so excited to be here with Jamie Seaman, an old friend of mine and the Vice President for Strategic Marketing and Communications at Chapman University. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you. And I'm sure by old, you mean we've just known each other a long time. Yes. I mean, we've known each other for like 15 years, but we were four. So that (laughs) fits with our whole, we're 29 years old thing. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So Jamie, uh, tell us a little bit about your higher ed journey. Um, Sure. I mean, I I got into higher ed, I think, like a lot of people by accident. I don't know how many people, you know, grow up thinking I'm going to work in higher ed, but I worked in in corporate marketing for most of my career until um, a job opened up at my alma mater. I was doing corporate retail e-commerce just as the recession was was hitting. And so that was, you know, the most stressful time of my life. I had the, the nightly dreams of, you know, being in high school and can't get in my locker to get to my exam and <laughs> realized I, I was in need of a, a different move. And so serendipity had it, um, a place opened up at the University of Wisconsin that I went to. And um, I started out as a web marketing manager, which you will remember because that's when you and I first met. (laughs) And I um, have been in higher ed ever since. I I found my home there and um, will never look back. That's awesome. It's so funny that the people I talk to, how many people just sort of fell into higher ed marketing, didn't necessarily set out for that to be their career and ended up loving it and not wanting to do something different. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah, that's absolutely me. You know, once you get into sort of a mission-based organization, I think you you realize that, you know, what you were doing before just didn't seem to have the, the same meaning. But then higher ed is just a special place in, in general, just especially when you walk around campus and you, and you get to, you know, have meetings about homecoming and, you know, things that you didn't think you'd ever get to experience again. Now you have really in-depth meetings about them. So it's, it's just a fun place to be. Well, and you're at Chapman University now. How long have you been there? I've been here just over four years. I came out here in, in 2018, made the long move from the Midwest to Southern California and have to say the, the weather's a lot better. What a hardship. <laughs> I know, it's, it's tough, but someone else <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. And tell us a little bit about your department at Chapman. Yeah, it's it's a really, I, I came from, you know, a smaller 
of the Wisconsin campuses, as, as you know, and um, I came out to Chapman, and one of the appealing parts about it was the, the, mar the marketing department itself was a really healthy-sized department, fully staffed. We were 40 when I got here. I've, I've cut back a little bit, so fully staffed. We're at about 35 full-time people. We have a, a pretty good market or pretty good healthy marketing budget, and we have been able to really sort of transform how how we function. And um, we have focus areas in creative services. Um, communications and, and marketing and in the marketing side of it we're really starting to move much more into digital journey building all of the super fun advanced marketing stuff that I've always wanted to have the resources to do and, and now we're, we're we're doing it that's awesome I'm so happy for you that you've landed somewhere that you can kind of put your stamp on it and actually have budget to do that it <laughs> it's makes such a difference it changes things <laughs> <laughs> it totally does so one of the things that we're going to talk about in this episode is your marketing maturity model and the efforts that you're making to mature your office into a high-performing marketing model. And that's something that I have shamelessly uh, stolen from you and I'm implementing at um, Miami University in Ohio. And so I'm excited about this conversation. But from your perspective, how would you define marketing maturity? I think the easiest way to talk about it is now, how strategic and coordinated are your marketing efforts? I think that it's really easy in, in higher education to just have a fragmented, you know, lack of strategy in a lot of cases. Organizations, higher ed organizations are just really complex and there's a lot of different silos within, within higher education. And, and to be able to market in a really cohesive way that really choreographs an experience for audiences is, is really difficult. And so measuring um, the maturity of an organization to me is how, how effective are you being at having a really strategic and choreographed experience that, that meets organizational goals, but pr provides an experience for audiences that's, that's relevant and engaging. So why do you think that is important for higher ed marketers to think about? Again, it's it's really easy to, um, to to not move the organization forward. I think because it's such a complex organization. But I mean, as we all know, our, you know, higher education is increasingly more competitive, and and we've been a little bit slower, I think, to to adopt what is you know some foundational marketing tactics and, and strategies. And if we if we don't start to to gain you know traction, I think we're you're going to see who excels in it and who doesn't based on how, how mature their marketing organization truly is. So with your marketing maturity model, can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like? Um, I, I, I've seen you have, and, and I've adapted a model of this, a chart that kind of shows progressing from a transactional model to a high-performing model. But can you talk through what is included in that? Sure. It's, it's essentially a graph that... You know, across the, the side, down the side, is what I consider the, the key areas that, that we're focused on. So in my maturity model, it's brand management, integrated audience journey, um, insights infrastructure, strategic alignment, risk management, and then department cohesion. So that's, you know, down the side and then across the bottom is 
what I would consider sort of the, the measures of maturity. So when I first got here, for example, I considered our operation very transactional. So to me, that meant that in each of those categories, we were really sort of in our infancy of of being strategic. So, you know, we were essentially putting out fires. I have a little graphic of a little fire extinguisher <laughs> because we That's weren't able probably to- probably familiar to our <laughs> listeners. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, when you're playing whack-a-mole and you're, and you're just fixing the things that are being brought to you, you can't be strategic. And so as you progress, and I always wanted this to be sort of a five-year plan, and now I'm just taking two years out for COVID. So I feel like we're in year three um, of moving forward from what I consider transactional to progressing to sort of middle of the road, which is where I feel like we are today, which is competent and consistent my hope is that we move into the column called accelerating and then finally get to a point where we, we I consider us what I would call a high performance team where we're really doing really solid strategic work. The, the creative is memorable, it's relevant, the experience is, is timely and we're meeting our audiences where they are. It's really a choreographed experience. We're building our brand at a national level and that we're really building momentum and all of that is informed by really solid and relevant and timely data. From my perspective, I started at Miami a little less than two years ago, so we're a little behind you in that journey. One of the things that um, we're, I'm using the marketing maturity model for is to help my team see that there's a vision for what we could be and sort of show them this is what we're working toward and understanding that we can't really jump from transactional all the way to high performing in six months. Like there's a lot of investment that needs to be made, that needs to be made in infrastructure and needs to be made in expertise on the team. Are you using yours in that way with your team? Like are they embedded in the marketing maturity model on a daily basis? Or are they thinking about it in that way? Yeah, you know, it's, it's exa- you're exactly right. That was part of the intent that I, I, and I'll say I shamelessly stole this concept from Indiana University in full transparency. And really it was the exact tool I needed at the moment when I saw it because I had what I considered sort of a twofold issue of making the internal team understand where we're going. And, and part of it stemmed from this feeling of change fatigue that I was feeling from the department. When I got here, we were making a lot of changes and we were building out process, implementing technology. Like we were doing a lot when I first got here. And I kept getting this sense from people that they're waiting for the changes to end. And I needed them to understand that we're a long way away, away from that. And so they needed to see where we were going. And like you said, I wanted them to get excited about it and I wanted them to feel invested in it. At the same time, you know, the campus community, you know, during my honeymoon period was super excited about the changes we were making. They're very tolerant of the fact that we were going through through change. But at some point, you know, they got a little impatient about when they were going to start to see the results. And so I needed the deans and senior leadership and, and our campus partners to also understand that this is a pretty lengthy journey that is going to take multi, you know, it's a multi-year journey that we all had to go through. And I needed them to also see and get engaged and excited about where we were going. But I also needed them to see themselves in it too, especially when there's decentralized people across campus who are doing this kind of work as well. They needed to see that at some point they're going to be plugging into a bigger strategy. They needed to see themselves in it as well. So it became a really, really effective tool for for campus and for the department to, to see where we were going. Hey all, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO. I want to take just a quick moment to thank my friends at Nectar who made this new Enrollify podcast possible. 
Nectar brings affordable communications infrastructure to college campuses. It's like Slack, but for the higher ed student experience. Nectar integrates seamlessly with all major LMSs, making it easy for instructors and administrators to build emergent learning communities in all of their classes and groups without the extra work. Their focus is on boosting student engagement and reducing instructor stress by building a learning community in every classroom. By leveraging familiar technology like instant messaging channels, Nectar prepares students for the remote yet collaborative work environment of the future. You can learn more about their platform by heading on over to Nectar, that's N-E-C-T-I-R dot I-O, and be sure to tell the team that Jamie sent you their way. I think there's so much um, to be said for making sure that the campus is seeing these, almost like a benchmark of where we are today. Like I'm trying to do a twice a year update to our board that's like, this is where we are. This is where we're starting to move across the model um, and share that with our deans and stuff too, because I think you're right. People think the progress is so incremental that they think it's maybe not happening or like, if she's so great, why isn't this all solved already? Um, And it's, very time and resource intensive to really have a mature marketing organization um, and, and the board and your leadership needs to be willing to make those investments. Has your campus been um, open to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think everybody's on board with where we're trying to go. Like I said, I think there there is certainly an impatience, especially because we're in, you know, now year four of, of this pretty dramatic change. Um, people still want you know, and see what great marketing could be. And if they get something from us, they consider sort of mediocre marketing. You know, they're, you know, why am I not getting this? Why am I not getting that? I want more. And so to still be able to anchor back and say, well, here's where we are, you know, change takes time. Here's what we're implementing. And a lot of it, it's it's internal skill set growth, but it's also just the time and resources it takes to build out technology. You know, we're rolling out um, a marketing platform that, really takes a long time sits on top of a, a CRM you know the CRM has to go in first people are impatient about uh, the marketing component of it that was things take time so we have to get the technology in place and then we have to learn how to use it and then we eventually are going to get to really cool marketing that all by itself is as a multi-year plan so you know it, it's you know people just get impatient and you know on one hand you know it can feel frustrating especially for the department to to feel that pressure but I look at it really positively as like we've really raised the bar and the level of work that we're providing. So you know, kudos to us that they can't wait for us to to keep doing more because they know we're capable of it and they want to see see great things too. Yeah, that's awesome. For your team, um, do you have goal setting that you do around the marketing maturity model, or how do you keep the team sort of focused on those end goals? Yeah, I think that's really the probably the most critical part of it is. You know, at the at the beginning, it felt sort of surface level, and it was just sort of an educational tool. And then, just as we got you know more mature over time of even just how to use the maturity model, um, what we ended up building out, and really the the leadership team within my department is, is hyper focused on this. And what we ended up building out is what we call our our roadmap. And so, I mean, we literally just built out this massive spreadsheet that. Um, became sort of the anchor for all of our work and every you know we every person you know every director level or above owned one of these categories so someone owns brand management and they own within the spreadsheet creating all the initiatives or at least overseeing the initiatives and defining of what we're going to do to move to the next column I mean we literally talk about how we're going to move to the next column and we build out different initiatives so at one point we had 
63 initiatives spread over the six different categories within the maturity model that we built out timelines for. And so then our, our regular you know, leadership meetings were about, okay, what are we doing? What have we done? Where are we in, in this? What has to happen to move this forward? So they got hyper-focused on, on moving us, us forward. And now we're at the point where we're building an input to performance evaluations. We're starting to build languages, new job descriptions come into play that really mirror the way we're talking about the work that we're doing from the maturity standpoint. So everybody really is aligned around around this. And I'll say again, you know, we took a little hiatus over um, over COVID because we just everybody was just heads down, just staying afloat. Now we're getting we're getting back into it. So we're going to really take a much deeper look. And now I'm looking at even just from an organizational structure when I look at, you know, titles and do I, you know, move responsibilities around it all. I'm mirroring it back to and literally naming things based on what we what a high performance team looks like. I'm using that language and in job descriptions and titles. So people really start to feel like this is this is the structure of our team. So it's really the bedrock of what you do in your department. I think that's mm-hmm. I think it's really important to have that kind of vision that's really clearly articulated and shows those steps of how you're going to get there. Um, we worked the every we have nine measures on our marketing maturity model and we worked all nine into people's performance evaluations. I think for next year we might divide them up and have some groups more geared towards moving certain of them forward and other groups moving others forward because nine was a lot of goals for every single person in the department to be <laughs> to be tracking but we wanted everybody to feel like they had some ownership in what we're trying to do and that we needed everybody to move this forward in the way that we wanted to well and it's and that's the nice thing about it you know it, it's a concept more than this this stagnant thing and so it needs to be organic and it, you need to be able to to shift it you know one thing that i'm i'm really focused on now and and i think it's probably just the natural progression of, of where i'm at with it is you know department cohesion is is one of the the focus areas and and again that felt sort of surface level at the beginning you know we were doing things to build the team culture and, and make sure that people were embedded in it and we talked about you know we have built a culture committee and and you know to do things to to build teamwork but now i and now i realize that where we are now that is such a critical component that Department, climate, and culture is going to be the critical piece that moves us to the next level. And so, you know, we're going through the, you know, the great resignation and, and every, you know, person who leaves is provides an opportunity for us to look at, well, what do we need now? Because at the beginning, I needed builders. I needed people who are really going to help build. I mean, we had really no process. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. We had almost no process when, when I got here. So... We implemented all kinds of process, you know, overcorrected to a degree. Um, I needed builders at that point. And now now that we're, you know, sort of middle of the road and, and we're moving towards, you know, really a, the big leap of what will bring us to high performance, now I feel like I need someone who can can really help build culture in a way that, that builds collaboration because when each director was sort of building their own team and building their own processes and getting the fundamentals in place, that was what we needed then. Now, if, if we're gonna really go to the next level, those teams need to be working together in a really collaborative way. 
And I feel in our culture that we haven't gotten there yet. People are still very focused on this is my job, this is your job. And, and if, if I don't have people who can now develop that sort of critical culture that is going to allow us to, to move forward, then we're not going to get there. And so it, it's interesting how any given time, I think the, the focus areas can either be a higher or lower priority. And to be able to be organic in that, I think, is, is super key. That is absolutely my top priority for the next fiscal year, too, is that collaboration and culture piece. And the great resignation, we haven't so much lost a lot of people. We've lost a few, but we've had a really hard time filling vacant positions. Um, there's a lot of desire to work fully remote, and most of our positions are not um, fully remote, and many of them um, are we need them to be on campus and be part of the campus community and, and people don't want to. What percentage of your staff is working hybrid right now or re fully remote? We really only have two people who are approved to work fully remote and, and those are web team. We have um, work from home which has been you know, an interesting sort of trial and error. Um, we started doing work from home even before COVID, and that was one day a week people could work from home. And, and it was super effective because people were able to have that day out of the office to kind of be heads down. Um, and we went through the same transition of everybody. It was hard to bring everybody back because now I've proven how effective I can be at home. And, you know, we're all talking about sort of the same thing. The, the culture is so hard to, to get back when we're not together. And so when we originally came back, we came back with um, three days in the office, two days work from home. And then, you know, something silly was, you know, stagger it so that we always had team coverage in the office that day. Well, all that did was create this environment where everybody was still on Zoom all day long because most of their team was at home. And so they're stuck at their desk on Zoom and it was just super frustrating. So now we've adjusted where everybody's in the office on the same days and work from home on the same days. And now we've got a much better dynamic and the days that we're in the office is where I'm trying to even change our physical space to, to create you know I have much more brainstorming areas I'm built putting couches and whiteboards and building brainstorming rooms and now we're trying to figure out from a, a process standpoint how do we leverage these spaces how do we how do we make more of a habit of, of how we work together differently when we're physically here so that when we're home we can still do these super effective work from home but when we're here it's a very the, the expectation is very different and it was funny even prior to covid people were people were getting to the point of you know sort of the frustration of open office environment and it's really you know noisy and, and I'm loud in here and, and I need private time and now what I, I want people to adjust that that's what you want the days that you're in the office like this is these are the days that you're getting to see each other again and you're you're socializing and we're brainstorming and we're working together and it should be loud and fun in here on the days when we're together. And then when you're home, those are your work from home days. And that's where you get your quiet time and, and you're, you can be super effective and, and functional. But so just it's such a different mindset that it'll certainly take time to get there. But I think, you know, I don't know if there's a perfect balance, but we're, we're working towards it. <laughs> we're in that same right now. We have only everybody's in the office on Wednesday. Otherwise, it's spread out for coverage and it's two, three days in the office, two days at home for most people. And we're having that sort of Zoom fatigue because everybody's sitting in their cubes with their headphones on doing Zoom calls all day. And why am I commuting 45 minutes to do that? And we met today actually to talk about what are some other ways that we can structure this. So it's 
it's great to hear from you that the approach of having everybody in the office on the same days is potentially working a little bit better for you. I'll be interested yeah. in seeing how that shapes up for you in the next couple of weeks and months. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, there there's certainly pressure to allow for more work from home days. I'm, I'm really torn about it because, again, I think I, 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 there's people, I can see the morale, you know, challenges that people have when they're they're at home. It's isolating for a lot of people. and. And, and when they're together in the office, they just have a different life to them. And so I, I struggle with what they, they feel that they want compared to what I feel like they need, which is just much more engagement with each other. I mean, we're marketers, we're communicators, you know, theoretically, a lot of us, you know, enjoy, you know, human interaction. And so to, to back away from that so much is, I think, been hard. What do you think is a good place for a CMO who's interested in following this approach to maturing their organization? I think the first point, and you know, you said it too. You have nine categories. I have six categories. Defining how you even structure your your marketing program and defining what your categories are that you even want to mature, um, I think is is the first is the first and most important part of it. And then, you know, defining the categories of how mature you are is is sort of intuitive and it can certainly be shared. If anybody wanted mine, I'm happy to share it. Um, so I think. Defining even then what are those incremental steps from, you know, transactional all the way up to high performance. What are what is a reasonable and, you know, sort of measurable change between, you know, again, assuming it's year over year, which was always my goal. And that might be a little bit of an aggressive goal. But um, the goal was always, you know, what what does one year to the next look like if you're really progressing? And and so, you know, defining what that looks like. And, you know, for example, brand management, you know, transactional to me. In the, in the in the transactional phase of brand management, that looked like it was our brand was uninformed and irrelevant. We didn't really have a brand as compared to a high performance team where our brand is memorable and impactful. It's based on personalized journeys for segmented audiences. It's a mature brand that actually looks at the audience level and, and creates. You know, we talk talk about sub branding a lot. We have our institutional brand and then sub brands because every audience isn't the same, and you need to be able to be flexible within your brand and, and smart and data informed in your brand to to make sure that it's it's relevant for the right people at the right time. And so, understanding what does that look like incrementally over time, so that you can bring your team along in a reasonable way, and you know. Maybe maybe it's more than five categories. Maybe it should be you know six or seven, depending on how incremental you move. But again, it's you know it's the theory that you're trying to do more than I think literally. This is what it looks like. But you need to provide what the continuum looks like for for each category of marketing, and and then it becomes I think the powerful tool you need. Did you work through shaping yours out with your team, or did you kind of do it and then share it with your team? I did it and then shared it with my leadership team, and then we worked through it and, and tweaked it. Um, I'll say, you know, the, the shot, of, my first shot was, again, I, I shamelessly stole this from, from Indiana University. They had a much more elaborate and detailed maturity model that went into much greater detail over a greater amount of time. And so mine took a lot of the concepts, but just really streamlined it. and. Um, they didn't have a ton of feedback when I when I first shared it. They thought it was pretty it was pretty solid to begin with, and then we then we started 
having so what I tend to do is have the leadership team get on board and then have them work with their individual teams and so that's what they did they took it to their teams they got feedback that way so they had a voice in it and again while not a lot of changes I think they at least had the, the buy-in that they that they were able to help inform it and so I think that was a critical part of it so anyone who I think who wants to implement this and have it be effective I think that the teams themselves really need to to feel like they were involved in and had a voice in it and then the buy-in comes and then the excitement comes and then the momentum starts. You mentioned earlier, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you sort of have champions for each of the categories within your area. Am I understanding that right? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, just in, in my organizational structure, I have um, a level of assistant vice presidents and then directors for really every functional team. And to me, Developing our leadership team was also a critical part of building out the, the team in general and, and maturing the organization. So I wanted there to be sort of an intentional ownership at the director level to to be able to move initiatives forward. And so, you know, six directors, conveniently six categories. So really I assigned a category to each director, whether it made sense for their role or not. I mean, I tried to make it as make as much sense as we could, but all of this is integrated. So crosses teams so but I wanted them to have a stake and some ownership in it and so while they're not accountable for every initiative underneath their category they were responsible for at least making sure things were moving forward that these were defined that there's timelines established and then they were responsible in every director meeting which we had monthly of reporting out on the progress of each of those so it gave everybody a sense of ownership in it and some accountability and making sure things are moving forward and I think it was it was super critical at the time. Now, as I'm sort of evolving and maturing myself, um, I'm thinking now as I look at just the organizational structure of the department, building this much more into the roles and responsibilities that make more sense based on, so having someone responsible for brand management who is actually a overall, you know, overall accountable for brand management. So now building it into job descriptions as compared to sort of a leadership exercise. now making sure now is if we're going to continue to get more mature it needs to be built into to the organizational structure more in a solid way so that's what we're going to do now we took the a slightly similar approach where we took the nine um categories and then uh, we happened to have nine directors and they um it was really easy to sort of divvy them up because everybody had ones that they felt were most connected to their work um, and so we were able to kind of divide them up that way and then keep the brand category as um, across everybody. So that was the one that um, everybody sort of has a piece of ownership in. And like I said, they all have ownership across of tasks and responsibilities and strategies across all of them. But in terms of like shaping out what are we going to try to accomplish this year, we, we divided that up among the directors. And it seems to be working pretty well. This isn't really for the faint of heart, though, because it is, to your point earlier, change fatigue is a real thing. And this is sort of saying for the next five or six years, we're going to change. I keep trying to say iterate in order to like get people off of the, the change word. But have you had any change management issues with this approach? Yeah, you know, I, I, like I said, you know, I think if I were to look back and and make changes to how I how I did this along the way, I would have put much more focus on culture and climate to begin with. I really think that, you know, I think, you know, we lost people along the way, and that we probably could have kept had we, 
you know, manage the, the culture a little bit better. And, and again, there's, there's something to be said for the phase of building that, that we were in, but there's probably a better way to manage building and, and, and building collaboration and climate at the, at the same time. You know, climate is policies and process and, and procedure, and how you establish all of that can really make or break culture. And if, 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 we're, if we're saying culture is important, but that's not what we're rewarding, we're rewarding getting you know, this thing done, then you know, the culture becomes about getting those things done and forgetting about the human aspect of it. So that is something I would say anyone who, who's starting out on any sort of massive organizational change really needs to always keep top of mind is, is how, how you're, how you're going to feed culture in a positive way. And then I think we could have probably even maybe moved a little bit faster. Hey, all Zach here from Enrollify. If you like this podcast, chances are you'll like other Enrollify shows too. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. Our shows feature a selection of the industry's best as your hosts. Learn from Mickey Baines, Jeremy Tears, Jamie Hunt, Corinne Myers, Jamie Gleason, and many, many more. You can learn more about the Enrollify Podcast Network at podcasts.enrollify.org. Our shows help higher ed marketers and admissions professionals find their next big idea. Find yours at podcasts.enrollify.org. I think that's really good advice. And, and I think I have the same regret because I sort of treated them all equally. And I think that you can't get anywhere um, if you don't have good culture. And I inherited a team that had been through five leaders in the five years preceding my arrival, or four years, I think, five leaders in four years before my arrival. And that's a lot on, on people. And their expectation of what change is, is change never was good. So there was sort of this, we're going to change, and it's going to make things even worse than it is in a way. Not everybody, but you know, a subset of people who had been through the cycle of negative changes over and over again. And I, I think I underestimated the impact of that on the team and the long-term sort of damage that the team had had over having such rapid and continual leadership change. Change for the sake of change is really hard, and I think that happened in my organization as well. And that's where I think change fatigue is a real thing that we, that we need to consider through it all. Not to stop or slow down change, but to at least manage how it's perceived. And that's where the maturity model actually becomes a super powerful tool because they're not waiting for that magical day that it's going to stop. And I'll say the day we consider ourselves a high performance team doesn't stop the, the process. I mean, I hope we get to a point where I can say we've landed, but I sincerely doubt we're ever going to get there. There's always going to be more to do. The, you know, the climate's always changing. The tools, the tricks that we use are always changing. So people need to understand and, and mentally prepare for the what it means to be in an organization that's constantly evolving and, and that's where you know change fatigue can be managed I think if you can get them excited about the the process and, and where we're going. So Jamie when you look down the road what is your ultimate vision what does I know you just said that there's not really an end but what does the perfect situation look like to you? What's so funny, there is this exercise I've done in the past called the painted picture, 
and you know you you write down what you think and what does it look like when you walk around your office in in, in three years and you know it's not 10 years not 15 years it's three years what does it look like that's why I think it's a powerful exercise because it really gets you tangible about what it is you're trying to accomplish I have this dream <laughs> that I'm going to walk around the office and there's going to be people sitting in my couch area and they're going to be talking about something really cool that they want to try I'm going to walk and I'm going to hear all this buzz and noise around and someone's going to be celebrating the AB test that they just did and I just I have this dream that we're going to just get super excited once we power through some of these really huge milestones like getting our technology up and running and and we can really just focus on the work I just feel like we're going to get to a point where everyone just really sees how fun this is and we get really jazzed about doing cool stuff. I love that. I love that idea of like the energy that you're describing in the office too. I think that's part of what makes marketing and communications like such a fun place to work. It should be the kind of jobs that we're excited on Sunday nights that we get to go to work tomorrow. Um, and I think that's just a beautiful vision for your team. What challenges do you think exist that might keep you from getting there? Oh, you know, all of the things like, you know, having, <laughs> having just everything, time, <laughs> all of it, you know, honestly, it's, it's having the time and the resources. We, we know there's so much work to be done while we're trying to move these huge boulders up the hill. And so how do you how do you manage the the day to day? workload at, while we're still trying to move these huge initiatives forward and and it's a real challenge that we all have I mean I could double the size of my marketing team and still not meet all of the needs and desires that the campus community has and even talking with them about whether or not that makes sense or not compared to where we're, we're trying to go strategically is always a challenging topic and you can never meet expectations you can you know hope to exceed them but you know you're lucky if you can keep people happy so trying to trying to make the most out of our our limited resources is always going to be the biggest challenge and you know now we have just these monumental changes in, in higher ed that we're dealing with the cliff is coming and and all of these huge things that we're trying to tackle the value of higher education always under pressure all of these things while still trying to to move these these incremental things forward is always obviously the biggest the biggest challenge a couple episodes ago, I talked to Jason Simon about his perspective on why CMOs were getting more of a seat at the table. One of the things that he talked about was that um, COVID sort of elevated the importance of Marcom in that like, we had to respond to all of the things that were happening in the world, and communications was wrapped up in that. Um, but that's also sort of a double-edged sword because we're also dealing with all of these crises while trying to move our brands forward or move our offices forward. Do you have any advice that you would give to CMOs for managing those two, those two realities that like Marcom, crisis, issues management, reputation management, and continuing to move the forward progress on, on maturing your operation? Yeah, that's a really tough one. I, I do agree. I think that I just look at how I spend my own time and how much that's shifted just over over the last few years. I spend so much time in issues and crisis management and, you know, part of the wonderful dynamic that is social media and always being hyper connected and on all of the, you know, the digital platforms that keep us connected also has us in the spotlight all the time and just constantly managing the next, you know, reputational risk. So. I mean, I guess from from my perspective, and I have to remind myself of it too, that you know, 
use your team the way you need to use your team. And, and that's part of why my focus has been so strongly on building out the leadership team within my area. I know that I'm not going to be able to pull back from some of these larger initiatives or these larger issues management, how I spend my time. I need to make sure that the team is, is moving these initiatives forward and has the ownership and the skill set that they need to be able to be doing these things. So, you know, delegating and building the, the team to make sure that they're able to continue to move things forward, I think, becomes super important. That's why all along I've known that I needed to, to build a leadership team now as I am spread more and more thin, which is great because I'm involved in all kinds of conversations that we should be a part of. Um, it does take my attention away from, from moving things forward, so I need the team to be able to do that. I think that's great advice for especially a new CMO coming into an organization to think about filling those leadership positions. I kind of describe it as the football needs to keep moving. I need to be able to hand it to somebody. Will I go do this other thing over here, deal with this other issue? And I know that the football is still moving down the field in the direction that we have all agreed that the football needs to go. And then I'm not going to come back and say, why are there three footballs now? Or where did the football go? Why is the football a soccer ball? Like all of those kinds of things. Just keep it moving. Keep it moving. I'm and so I think that's with your sports analogies. That's very nice. I know sports ball is in goal units, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's something that I think that what, the best advice I got when I started at Miami was: you need to fill your vacant leadership positions first, because otherwise you are going to be doing your full-time job plus those leadership position full-time jobs and it's just not going to be possible to get everything done that needs to get done you're going to be spread too thin yeah i I agree and i'll and i'll add on that to say as you're filling leadership positions make sure that they are the people that you need to build the culture that you want as well because the tone that they set especially when you're not there is the tone that becomes that culture and so you can have someone who can be amazing at their job, but they cannot be who you want building, the, defining your culture, I think. And it's, it's a hard thing to interview for, but it becomes super critical in, in the day-to-day. One of the things that we say on the team is you, can't, you can train people on skills, but you can't train character. And that, so when we do hiring, you know, we're looking for people that, are positive people, people who are going to be contributing to that positive, enthusiastic, energetic culture, and not like people who are going to complain all the time or be pot stirrers or whatever. Um, because, and you can't really make somebody be something they're not. Yeah. They're yeah, either a an positive, enthusiastic person or they're not. Exactly. <laughs> so, not everyone can uh, be as cool as a Jamie. Obviously. Obviously. I mean, everybody's set back a little bit by not being named Jamie. Um, <laughs> so, Jamie, in terms of the marketing maturity model, do you see some uh, an approach like this as being a trend that we're going to see across higher ed? I, I do know we talk to a lot of people about wanting to mature their organizations, but um, do you think that a tool like this is the way to go? What do you think about that? I hope so. And I'll say the fact that, you know, I stole it from IU and you stole it from me. And, you know, I've seen other organizations kind of pop up with this similar language. I do think that, I think once you understand the power of the tool itself, I think it becomes super effective in in moving, again, not just moving your organization forward, but communicating internally and externally on on what it is that you're doing. I, I hope this becomes a real trend because to me, this has been transformational. For me as a leader, it's been transformational for us as a department and university. So I, I hope that it does. I remember when you were so excited to 
share it with me. Like you were just like so jazzed about <laughs> I know, it. I was, and I was like, I know. I'm like, yeah, I need to steal that. Um, Cause it is, it is truly, whoever came up with this first was just absolutely um, a genius, I think, because it just lays everything out so well for the team mm-hmm. and, and sets a direction. So um, Jamie, this is my last sort of off topic question, but if you had a $10 million boost to your budget, where would you invest it? And let's pretend it's recurring dollars. Okay. <laughs> Good differentiator. Yes. <laughs> it's ongoing funding. I would probably divide it up between additional staff and additional marketing spend. Um, the staffing area I would boost. I would bring someone in to just get us up and running on these technology platforms that, that we've been slowly implementing. I'd bring someone in to just train us and get us doing, you know, at least the skill level we need to use them. I'd through that probably understand how many more people I could really build out and in, into the to the digital area. One area that I would desperately love to just triple the staff in is just building out journeys to look at every one of our audiences build out those conflows, you know, do sophisticated journey building, trying to automate as much of that as we can and really start to get sophisticated in that area. That's where I know we need to go. And that is the hardest area, I think, to, to resource. So I would just put so much into that. And then, you know, the other $5 million would be, you know, I'm trying to build a national reputation. So I need to do everything I can to, to build brand for, for our organization across the country. We've moved from a regional um, private to a national private about three years ago and so we have to build that reputation so that we can continue to you know rankings are something that we have to pay attention to and we don't have that national name yet and so building on that would be the other part of the, the objective and that's expensive building a national brand is expensive it sure is <laughs> this is um the first institution i've been at that's been really focused on building a national brand. And when you start to think about what national really means and the breadth and scope of that, it's really, really, really expensive. Yeah. And I don't, you don't have, I don't, I, well, I'm a division one school. It's not a power five conference. So we don't have the boost from football. We don't have a medical school to give us that boost. So it's, you know, we're kind of with one hand behind our backs. A lot of national brands have Division One football team. Mm-hmm. No, I always say if we could just get a basketball team in the Final Four, that's all it really takes. <laughs> but we, <laughs> it's not going to happen for us being D three. So we just talked about this today with um, our VP of Enrollment Management about if, what would solve all our problems: a Final Four appearance. Yep, that's it. all it takes, really. <laughs> I think George Mason or somebody had like an eight thousand or eight hundred percent increase in applications after they went to the Final Four. I mean, just mind-blowing, yeah. mm-hmm. the brand so, lift yeah. that you get. If we can just do that. That's what I, I told my president that, too. I'm like, let's just go D1. Let's get a really good basketball team. That's all I need. <laughs> Cheap and easy, right? Obviously. <laughs> so, Jamie, um, I've enjoyed our conversation, but if anybody else wants to pick your brain on what you're doing at Chapman, where can they find you? Oh, sure. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, Jamie Seaman, just spelled like that, J-A-M-I-E-C-E-M-A-N. And... My Twitter is SmithJ90. So you can catch me on either of those places. Otherwise, you, know, you can look me up at Chapman. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Jamie. And thank you to the listeners. As always, I hope to see you on Twitter with the hashtag HigherEdCMO to continue this conversation. You can also find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, Twitter, I am at JamieHuntIMC. That's J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C. And LinkedIn, I am Jamie Hunt. And I hope to hear from you and um, be back with another episode in two weeks. Hey y'all, Zach here from Enrollify. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO with Jamie Hunt. If you liked this episode, do us a huge favor and hit that follow and subscribe button below. Furthermore, if you've got just two minutes to spare, we would greatly appreciate you leaving a rating and a review of this show on Apple Podcasts. Our podcast network is growing by the month, and we've got a plethora of marketing, admissions, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks that are all designed to empower you to become a better higher ed professional. But Enrollify is far more than just a podcast network. Enrollify is where higher ed comes to learn new marketing skills, discover new products and services, and find their next job. We're a growing, learning community of 4,000 members, and we'd love to welcome you into the fold. You can access our free blog articles, newsletters, e-courses, and more, or purchase our master course on how to market a university with Terry Flannery at enrollify.org. We look forward to meeting you soon and welcoming you into the community. Again, you can subscribe for free at enrollify.org.